Dungeon Lane is part whodunit, right? It's part mystery because the fire is a mystery. No one has any idea what happened or who did it. But it's really the story of a woman finding her voice at a time when women really didn't have a voice, you know, in the 50s. And she embarks on this journey in part by something Marilyn Monroe says to her, where she realizes that, you know, everything she has might on the outside seem perfect, but inside it's not really what she wants. And she embarks on this journey to figure out who she really is and what she really wants. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Brooke Lee Foster, whose new novel on Gin Lane, our own Christy Woodson Harvey, called A Page-Turning Mix of Historical Fiction and Coming of Age. We're excited to talk to her about the inspiration for her second novel and what she thinks makes a great beach read. I'm Ron Block. And I'm Christy Woodson Harvey, and I am so excited to get to talk to my pub house sister, Brooklyn Foster, today. I have loved both of her novels, her debut, Summer Darlings, and her brand new, Anjan Lane. Brooke is an award-winning author and journalist who has worked as a writer and editor at the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine, the Huffington Post, and the Washingtonian Magazine. She's currently a contributing writer to Psychology Today Magazine. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yeah. And in addition to that, she's had articles that have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post Magazine, Good Housekeeping, Parents, Parade, Scholastic Parent and Child, The Baltimore Sun, The Boston Globe, Psychology Today, among many others. I believe this woman has cloned herself. <laughs> Her debut novel, Summer Darlings, was featured as top summer read in People Magazine, named a top summer pick by Entertainment Weekly, and named one of Parade's best books of summer. She's an alumna of the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, and she's the author of three nonfiction books, Anjin Lane is her second novel, and it's amazing. Welcome once again, Brooke. We've got a lot to talk about. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you. We've been really looking forward to this. Definitely. Um, I'm already getting off script here, but before we like dive in, we have to talk about the cover of this book. Uh, uh. I just want to like hang it on my wall. I mean, it is so, it is the most beautiful cover. So if you have not seen this cover, even if you haven't seen it in real life, like it's this gold foil and this beautiful blue water and Everly on the cover and this olive green bathing suit. And and bathing suit. Yeah, it's very, and she has right. that like chic jacket on with it. That's so, so super fifties, right? It's interesting. I don't know what your experience has been, uh, Christy, but 
with this book, my publisher gave us about 10 to 12 different options for the cover. And they were all, you know, mid-century because the book takes place in 1957. So they were all very chic and had women, you know, in different places wearing different types of 1950s outfits, whether it's like a scarf tied over her head and posing in front of an old car, or there was one of a woman with her hair kind of like in a chignon in the back with a collared dress, you know, standing with a suitcase at the beach. But my editor and my agent and I, as soon as we saw this one, we were completely on different computers in different rooms and we all honed right in on this cover because it was it. It was just captured, I think, the story so much, which we can talk about later. But, you know, there's this woman on the cover and she's looking off at the beach and she's filled with so much longing. And, you know, there's daydreams within her. And I think there's so much of that theme in the novel. So it just, it wasn't just that she's beautiful, which she is, or she has the most perfect legs on the planet because all of them are (laughs) so good. Yeah. (laughs) Just like attain those legs. Mm -hmm. It's more just, I think that personality, you know, of the story that really comes alive in the cover. Yeah. No, I love the cover so much. And I ended up, you can't, because of the way we took the picture, you can't even see it. But when I was taking pictures with your book, I have an olive green bathing suit with like this gold belt and I was wearing it. So I really matched the cover, but I didn't want it to be like, you can't see it. So unfortunately, you know, but I tried, I get points for trying. Okay. (laughs) So to start us off, I wanted to ask you something that we always ask on Friends of Fiction, which is, can you tell us briefly about Anjin Lane? Um, And then... Can you tell us what it's really about? Ooh, scandal. Yeah, this is becoming my favorite question. (laughs) So Anjan Lane follows a socialite named Everly Farrows, um, who lives in Manhattan and is newly engaged to an auto magnet son. It's the summer of 1957, and he whisks her off to the Hamptons for what she thinks is, is a weekend. It's a surprise weekend in the Hamptons. And when they get out there, he gifts her this early wedding present of an oceanfront hotel. Amazing. Um, and, but she's a, little, a pretty solid wedding gift. I mean, pretty amazing, right? But she yeah, actually yeah. is a little ambivalent because she, it was a surprise. She had no idea that, that, you know, this was coming. And then she had no concept that he was going to announce that they're staying for the whole summer, which is what he does. And she doesn't even have a bag packed, you know? Um, and so she kind of comes around and they have this grand, glamorous, grand opening party where, um, at the hotel where Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe kind of famously slip into the party with Jackie Kennedy and CZ Guest and all the who's who of, you know, uh, Hampton society back then. And that night they go to bed and the hotel burns to the ground. So the story, I would say Anjan Lane is part who done it, right? It's part mystery because the fire is a mystery. No one has any idea what happened or who did it. But it's really the story of a woman finding her voice at a time when women really didn't have a voice, you know, in the 50s. And she embarks on this journey in part by something Marilyn Monroe says to her, where she realizes that, you know, everything she has might on the outside seem perfect, but inside it's not really what she wants. And she embarks on this journey to figure out who she really is and what she really wants. Yes. Um, and what the novel is really about. I mean, that to me is what the novel is really about. I'm trying to think, I mean, I love in the beginning when I first wrote this book, I had a lot more of the, the love story when, you know, there's a love triangle and she meets kind of this new love interest. And I, I sort of like was going in that direction a little more. And then I reined it in because I think what this book is really about is a, is a woman finding herself. And so the story, as I was building it, 
it had to really be about her discovering her way versus a man helping her find her way. I didn't want it to go in that direction. So I kind of dialed back a little bit of the the love story and any of the romantic scenes that were in there. And they're still there, but they just, they come later. She has to kind of figure herself out first. Well, and not only is a man not helping her find her way, but neither is her family. And I think that's, you know, a really important point because she sort of comes from this world where that expectation is, is everything. Yeah. It's just very rarefied world where she's been given a lot of pressure to get married and go live in the suburbs and have a baby. And, you know, her parents are just really traditional parents of the time. That's what was expected. You know, women back then were expected to get a Mrs. Degree. You went to college to meet a husband and then you became the happy homemaker. And, you know, she, she's feeling that pressure so much from her parents and she wants to do right by them. Um, but, but in the end, she begins to distance herself, not just from their money and this rarefied world that she's grown up in, but also these stereotypes of who she's expected to be. She, you know, she kind of wants to figure out a new path. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was that rare breed at the time who really wanted more than the, what was given to her. Um, one of the things I love about the book, though, is um, how you just so vividly uh, talk about the settings. I, it, like in my mind, there's just this very tiny piece where she leaves the park, um, the hotel, and she goes over to the Paris cinema. And I'm like, I love that. And I, and I know that place and I don't know that area. So it takes me right back there. And much like what Christy does, all of the settings are just so, um, they come to life. And um, I, so talk about how you put that on paper. So I do a lot of research, obviously, because I have to, I have to know what the, you know, the Hamptons were like and Martha's Vineyard, my first book took place in Martha's Vineyard, what they were like in 1957. But I think I'm just an atmospheric writer. I, that's what I love. I love to transport myself from a New York winter onto this page where I'm suddenly, you know, in espadrilles and drinking a gin and tonic and gossiping with a friend at a really amazing party, right? So I'm feeling the details. I'm envisioning of where I would want to be. And then I'm kind of getting them down. But it doesn't come out right the first time, right? The first time you're sort of sitting there and writing the story, you're just kind of getting the general, you're hitting the general touchstones of what you want to do. And it's only through drafting when we go back and we reread a million times and we're revising that we add in a lot of those details. So, you know, it might go from she was sipping a cocktail to she was sipping a pink squirrel, you know, which was a cocktail, a pink cocktail of the time. It might go from she's wearing a bathing suit to She's wearing a, you know, strapless bathing suit with a striped bodice and gold buttons, you know? So, so we go in and we really, um, set the scene that way. But I also think having, so I purposely chose the summer of 1957 in the Hamptons because Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller were there. And because I think in introducing those, um, individuals into the story, it would immediately bring the reader very deeply into that time period. So not only is Buddy Holly, you know, that'll be the day playing as they're, you know, walking through the party, but to have Arthur Miller and Mailer Monroe and Jackie Kennedy, you know, and Jackson Pollock at this party that you're attending as the reader is immediately going to bring you back in time. Um, and so as, as writers, we do all sorts of sneaky little things like that. And then the language too, right? I mean, it's the cadence and, and the way they would have said something is so different. They might've called another woman, a you know, Hey doll versus, you know, Hey man, <laughs> how's it going? There's very specific. So I think as a writer, we were always calling, you know, we're bringing in all five senses 
And then we're bringing in the specific research that we've learned from diving into that time period. That's great. Now, uh, so it's not just one draft and send it into the publisher. I wish. I wish. No, I wish. all my illusions. You know, <laughs> I remember. So in my years as being a journalist, we drafted constantly. We're always cutting and revising. And I remember thinking, God, fiction writers must just sit down and flowers come out of their fingertips, right? Because that's how it appears when you read the books. But no, it's just like journalism. I write really messy first drafts. I write really messy probably three or five drafts because I just have to get the story right. I'm not a writer that sits and plots it all out. I know generally, I know always know the beginning and I have to say I do always know the end. So I know what I'm writing toward. But in the middle, I don't have a bunch of bullet points. So I like to, I always say I'm probably the most inefficient writer. I don't know how you are, Christy. I'd be so curious to know, but I really write so much and get it out there. And then I go back and I chisel and I rework and I, you know, shape. I'm also the most inefficient <laughs> writer. Yeah, um, that's where your creativity really kind of comes yeah. and bounces and, and centers on what you need to do. I think it is too. Like I agree with that. I think it is like, there's something about not knowing where you're going in a story that makes it more creative and then makes, there's so many things. And I, I'm, I'm betting you were like this too, but there's so many things that come on the page I never would have imagined if I had sat down and outlined the book and like really stuck to that. Yeah, you know? totally, totally. Actually, I have a scene. So I'm I'm out on the North Fork of Eastern Long Island right now, which is so the Hamptons or the South Fork, and I'm on the North Fork. And when I was taking my kids to camp, I think I was in revision mode at one point, and I was taking my kids to camp through this farm field. And this farm field has rows and rows and rows of just you know newly planted plants that really just look like rows of dirt, honestly. And in the distance, there was a sunflower field. And along the road, there was this little white shack that really had no windows. And it was like peeling paint on the white planking. And it was probably a place that the farmers, I think it's still a place where the farmers go in just to like get a little shade and drink some water. And I was driving this open road and there's not another car to be seen. And I'm literally getting my kids in 10 minutes. And I saw my character with her, this love interest, just like running through the field together, laughing. I could like see them going in this, like this little cottage and having their first kiss. And it was just very romantic. And it was, but it's so weird because I'm like driving down the road to get my kids at camp. But that scene is 100% in the book because I was so vivid to me and I could hear what they were saying in that shed to, to each other. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think like if, you can bullet point it, but then the actual fleshing out and the details and the atmosphere around that you were talking about comes when you're really writing, right? That's awesome. Yeah. 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 So a lot of the book is um, takes place in hotels, the plaza, the new hotel out on Southampton, but also you mentioned the, the Waldorf. Um, what inspired the storyline and the inclusion of hotels in so I was I love this story. So I was researching an, um, a historical element of my first book, Summer Darlings. And what I was trying to find out is if you were a society woman in 1962 traveling to Chicago, what hotel would you stay in? And it turns out that it would be the Palmer House Hotel in the Chicago Loop. Well, as I was reading about it, I uncovered this fascinating story. Now, I'm in the middle of revising Summer Darlings. I'm not writing a second novel at this point. I'm just excited to get one out. Um, but this hotel has this really storied past where this wealthy Chicago businessman named Potter Palmer, I always say it slow because it's a tongue twister, um, <laughs> had built this hotel, the Palmer House Hotel, which was like the Plaza Hotel, you know, in Chicago. I think it still is. Um, and um, he gifted it to his society wife, Bertha, as, sorry, 
fiance, Bertha, as an early wedding present. And 13 days later, the hotel burned to the ground mysteriously. And they really struggled with rebuilding it. It wasn't too much then. I mean, it's not too much now, but it was a lot then. It was about $3 million they had to cobble together to rebuild it. And they did. But that little nugget just stayed with me. I thought, God, that would make such a good book, right? I mean, we uncover as writers these ideas in such funny places. But I tabled it. And I, you know, I was like, I'll come back to that at some point. And when I was done with Summer Darlings and I was ready to write a new book, that's exactly what I did. I pulled that idea out and I thought, how about I transfer this story to a place I know and love, which is, you know, the New York area. So I would have the couple live in New York City and I would have him gift her the hotel out in the Hamptons and then I would have it mysteriously burned down. So that was just the very beginning of the of the story. And um, and then everything else got fleshed out later. Wow. And I the Palmer that. house is so gorgeous. I've been in it and stayed there, but I'm dying to go now because I, you know, oh. I've been to the the plaza and I've been to the Waldorf in New York, but I haven't actually been, been there. And I've heard like they have so many cool little details still that they've re you know, they brought back from that original hotel. They have. Well, I love so many things about this book, but one of the storylines that I thought was so relatable that you really touched on was Lee's struggle for her identity where she's, you know, she's been defined by these her parents and her family's expectations for her. And now it seems like she's really set up in this life where she will now be defined by Roland's expectations of her, but she starts to find that she's really not content with that, as you mentioned. And she's, you know, this incredibly talented photographer and meets this woman who sort of inspires her to explore that side of herself a little more. And so one of the things that I really liked about um, her story is just the exploration of that creativity and coming into her own as an artist. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if, you know, your knowledge of being an artist, maybe of a different sort, you know, do you infuse any of that knowledge into this part of Lee's story? Absolutely. I feel like for me, as a journalist, I was working for so many years writing, but it become somewhat formulaic. I could write a journalistic article pretty much in my sleep. And so when I started writing fiction, I just heard my voice for the first time in my life, to be honest with you. I mean, I've always heard my inner voice, but as a writer, I hadn't really you know, gotten in touch with that side of myself. And one of the things that Everly or Lee, because that's really who she becomes, and I think that name kind of encapsulates more of her stronger identity, is she goes on this path to, you know, discover this artistic side of herself while she's also trying to figure out if she can be a good wife and mother. And I think for me, that's something I've struggled with because I have two kids of my own. I started writing my first book when my youngest was six months old and it was really hard. I mean, you know, I know, you know, Christy, the kids pull you out of your imagination and a writer is always living in her imagination. And so I can do it, but it's definitely something that I've I've struggled with because every time I kind of go deep, I feel like I'm leaving my family behind a little bit. And then there's a sense of guilt, right? Because am I, am I disappearing too much into this imaginary world? You know how I have to make sure I come out when they need me. And, and that juggle is just something that's really hard. And so that definitely makes its way into the pages through Everly because she knows that she wants to get married and she knows that she wants, she's not a, she's a rebel, but she's not, the biggest, you know, she's not, she's not trying to protect yeah. everything. She still wants to get married and she thinks she still wants kids, but she wants more than that. And I think as women, you know, we figure that out really quickly. We're very happy being mothers and wives, but we want more. 
And I wanted to give Everly permission to have more. I wanted to give myself permission to have more and every other woman reading the book that it's okay to long for something else and incorporate a creative side into your you know, identity. And I think when she does, so there's this part in the book where she is spending a lot of time with this one artist who's a photographer and she invites her to come spend some time at this artist colony with her. And she's, you know, laying in, in bed in this little cottage one morning and she's hearing all the artists talking and, and this one artist, Starling, who you were referring to, this photographer has left her family behind. She has these very unique circumstances where her husband, she had gone to work in newspapers in the 1940s when all the men kind of went off to war in World War II. And then the men came back and women were expected to go back into the, into the home and she wouldn't. And her family kind of disowned her for that. Um, and I think the reason why Starling and Everly get along so well is because this photographer named Starling, who kind of grew estranged from her family, sees her daughter in Everly a little bit. Um, so she's laying in this, she's at this, um, this, this art colony and she hears all these artists. And then she thinks to herself, you know what? I'm not that extreme. You know, she kind of had to go there and be live this very extreme existence where all these people were sort of just, just doing art and not doing anything else to realize that, you know, she's not quite that either. She, she knew that she was something kind of in between. And I think that's kind of where I found myself. I, you know, I'm something a little in between. I want to be a wife and a mother and I want to be good at that, but I also want to be a writer and be really good at that. So. Yeah. And I do think that was, that's an interesting point and, and a good distinction that Everly makes is that she's not trying to, it's not one of those stories where she's completely rejecting everything she's ever known or ever thought. She just is trying to find something of her own, a little piece of the world, which is interesting. But um, yeah. Oh, it's funny. I started writing with when I had a brand new baby son too. Um, yeah. He was just like a few days old when I got my first book idea. Oh, and I was like, I'm crazy. What am I doing? Why would I do this? This is a terrible idea. I, I've always wanted to be a mom and here I am, but you're right. It's like, then all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, but that doesn't mean that I can just you know, forget everything that I've been doing for my whole life too. So yeah. it is interesting what your expectations are and then, you know, what actually ends up happening in your life and how you actually feel when those things kind of come and happen. But it is hard. I always laugh because I feel like sometimes when, especially when I'm in like a really major writing mode all day and I'll stop and like get in my car to go get Will at school. And I have to like, it takes me a minute. I'm like, okay, back in the real world, back in the real world, back in the real world. It's really funny. So that's, I think that's a really interesting point that you made because you do have to like flip that switch a little bit to get yourself back in the real world. You really do. And I also feel like when I'm writing and I'm really in my drafting mode, I have to let other things go in my life. And I don't mean like let lunch go for the kids or not like get a permission slip in on time. But I just have to accept that the laundry might pile up. Things are not going to yeah. be perfect in the house. Like you just have to let go of that in order to really go there creatively. Because I can't do it all, right? We can't. Yeah. It's it's impossible. Um, yeah. But yeah, to your point about going to pick up, sometimes I feel like I'm cross-eyed when I go pick up my kids at school just from writing so much. But then when I finished finish a draft, um, actually, when I finished Summer Darlings, I remember my husband saying to me, Oh, welcome back to us. And he wasn't being obnoxious. He was being really serious. Like he's like, wow, you're kind of back. Like I can actually talk to you again about something not that that's not about your characters because you really do. Right. You get so immersed when you're really in it. 
That's so funny. The two of you are shattering all my illusions. I feel like you just you're supposed <laughs> to go to cocktail parties and you get ideas. And by the end of the weekend, your draft is written and off to the publisher. Uh, well, I do that too. <laughs> In fact, I have one coming up this weekend that I'm like, I already know. Like, I don't know what the story is going to be, but there's going to be one because they're always is at this party. Ooh, <laughs> Good. Good. I can't wait. I can't wait. So you spoke about Summer Darlings, and we know that that was set on Martha's Vineyard in the 60s, and Anjin Lane is in Southampton in 1957. They're both decidedly glamorous places, and the time periods where things are really changing in the world and kind of people are finding their way and kind of um, going into a whole new um, decade, I think, about the 60s were really a, lot, a great deal of change. Yeah. What draws you to those settings? and the time periods? So my grandmother was a very glamorous. She was a dancer um, back in the 40s and the 50s. And she always had the, you know, she had like the most glamorous outfits on. She wore little headscarves and her little like, you know, collared shirts tied at the navel. And she would walk around calling us darling and doll. And she was just very <laughs> glamorous. So I, she just kind of always fired up my imagination the, of that time. And as I got older, I just really fell in love with the clothes. And, you know, it's so interesting to see the way they ate then, you know, because they ate so differently. They ate things like jello molds with salmon in them, you know, wacky yes. stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. The drinks were super, you know, interesting. There were obviously the gin and tonics and the lime rookies, but then there were like the grasshopper drinks with green vermouth. And um, so, so I love all of that stuff, but I think the, the reason that I love it the most is just because, you know, women were struggling so much at that time. As yes. glamorous as it looked on the outside, there was really deep pain on the inside of a lot of these women. And a lot of them relied on the mother's little helper pill, you know, a little antidepressive or anti-anxiety pill. Um, and there was a lot of day drinking, as we know. And, and women just weren't given a chance to dream. And I love the idea. I love the idea in both of my books that I give my characters some time to themselves, some, some, some opportunities to daydream about what their future might look like. Kind of the way you and I were given that opportunity, Christy, you know, like we were sure. told by our moms that, you know, we and our dads that we could do anything, you know, we were given that chance to think that women of that generation just weren't, and were, you know, kind of living this, you know, caged existence at home just fascinates me. You know, Betty for Dan's the feminine mystique will come out in 1963 and what she captures that misery of being the quote happy homemaker, you know, is what's in those pages. So, um, so I just, I love that. And I, I also think that writing historical fiction, and I'm sure you realize this, Christy, when you were writing the wedding veil, but you know, you can kind of rewrite history a little bit for these women, which is great fun. You get to, you know, say, well, maybe Everly, my main character in Anjan Lane, Maybe she really wouldn't have been able to go live with these artists and kind of discover that side of herself and distance herself. Like maybe that in real life, that would have looked really different. But in my novel, I can make it look really inspiring and I can give them this chance to do this. So so I, I just think that that time period is is so fun to play with with women. And my next book, I kind of move ahead in time. Um, so I will I am trying something new, but I, I just yeah, it's to think that women endured through those times, just back, you know, it just, it was, it was really hard on them. Um, well, Brooke, your novels are, you know, decidedly historical fiction, but for me, they're also 
really quintessential beach reads, which I think as a reader is this very mm-hmm. satisfying spot because you get swept away into this different time and time period and place and you're learning things, but you're also getting that like beach setting and that great character development and maybe even a little bit of a love story, which is what I always want during the summer. So I know that's a term that gets just thrown around a lot and beach read means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But what does, what does the term beach read mean to you? So beach read to me is, uh, well, I like to think my books are beach reads with teeth, right? So some, some some people write off the beach read as being, you know, too light, too airy, or perfectly light and perfectly airy, right? Like not a ton is going to happen except for maybe falling in love and, and, and doing so in a glamorous setting. But that's not what a beach read is to me. Like I count an Ann Patchett book as a beach read. A beach read to me is a book that moves. It's a book that has a great story that transports you to an entirely different place. It doesn't have to have a beach on the cover at all or a woman in a bathing suit at all. It just has to take you on a story of tremendous growth. Um, and so I remember when I first started writing Summer Darlings and I went to my um, first writing class at Sarah Lawrence College, um, sitting down and telling everybody I wanted to write a beach read. And it was almost like it was a dirty word. Everybody was like, oh, God, really? Like I'm writing literary fiction, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, I love beach reads. But I think to me, you know, beach reads are just really great stories that can be read, at, you know, in a beautiful place that enhances the characters and whatnot. Um, but, but yeah, so mine, like I said, I always, I, I can't help but write a, a beach read with teeth because I'm fascinated by beach towns and the class issues you find in beach towns. Um, cause kind of no matter where you are in the country, there are the people who can afford the houses in the beach towns and the people who work in these towns to, um, make work in many of these houses and in the establishments that the summer residents go frequent. Um, so in both of my books, there are issues of, um, you know, kind of the haves and the have nots clashing up against each other, even in just the opening chapters of Anjin Lane, when Everly first arrives at the hotel from the city and she's feeling really self-conscious in this hotel. She feels like the staff is all staring at her because she's the owner's fiance. She's looking in the mirror, so, you know, self-consciously and thinking her nose looks too big. And then she's taking a tour of the hotel with her fiance and he kind of, you know, goes to the bathroom and she hears the staff all talking about her. Oh, did you see her looking at herself in the mirror? Oh God, what kind of problems does she have? She, she's Miss Perfect. And, and she's not, you know, she has this mother at home who's really struggling with her mental health. And she, you know, is out here really without a choice. She was out at the beat, you know, given this hotel and told they're staying without really given much of a say. Um, and so I, I just love that idea that people on both sides of the fence kind of can misunderstand each other very easily and the assumptions that are put on the rich by some of the people who live in these towns who kind of are resentful and then the rich who are kind of looking at the locals and maybe taking advantage of complaining about how much it costs just to like pay them an hourly rate and they're just trying to get by. So all of those issues come up in, in my books and I love examining that. So even though in my book, you're going to get the love triangle and you're going to get the lightness of the atmosphere and all the glamorous characters and the lightness of story. There's also some really deep themes and serious issues that are kind of interlaced throughout the story. Yes. I really love that scene that you were just describing about the workers and Lee overhearing them. I think it really set up a lot of the the tension that you're going for in the book. So oh, yeah. I, especially when they call her a princess. Right. right. And then even <laughs> there's the scene where 
she Everly goes to meet with Starling, the photographer. She's this famous Annie Leibovitz-like photographer who's having a gallery showing in East Hampton that summer. And she kind of, Everly has this pipe dream, like maybe I should just go meet with her. And she doesn't really even know what she's going to try to get out of it, but she ends up meeting with her. And when they're having their very first conversation, Starling looks at her necklace, her pendant, her, I think it's an emerald or ruby necklace and the size of her diamond engagement ring. And Everly senses that she immediately writes her off as not being someone serious enough to pursue photography, that she's dabbling, that she's just a, you know, a rich woman coming to see what she can learn for a day. And Everly senses that and she takes off her jewelry and she's like, look, like I'm here. I want to actually learn something. This isn't about where I come from or my socioeconomic background, you know, take me seriously a little bit. So I think these things play out in really unique ways and small ways. And I tried to capture that in that scene as well. Yeah. Yep. So you mentioned Ann Patchett, but what, who are some of your other favorite Beach Read authors? Well, I've got my curse. You know, oh, <laughs> The Wedding Veil. No, I might have heard of that. So good. Christy, seriously, I love this book. Isn't it? It's really good. Okay. So I think, I mean, obviously we all love Ellen Hildebrand. She's so good at what she does. You know, she mm-hmm. just can... I'm like flying through the Hotel Nantucket right now. Yeah, I own it. I have it. I'm going to bring it with me on vacation. Yeah, do because you won't be able to put it down. Yeah, I can't wait. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, she's great. And Jamie Brenner's great. And Jamie's coming here next week to Bedford with me. Oh, my gosh. Yay. So, yeah, she has her new book coming out, Guilt. But who else am I loving? I read, oh, my gosh, you know what I read in the spring? And I can't believe I actually got through it. It was Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen. So I like in the, it's funny, because in the winter, I go like a little more serious in my reading. And then like as soon as like the days start getting a little longer, I start moving toward more of like the, I guess, summer reads. But that one was actually really good. I mean, it was the storyline of that family. I never thought it would suck me in and it did. And I finished all 700 pages of it. So yeah, but who else? I'm trying to think. I I always draw. This is anytime someone asks me this, I'm like, I have read 11 books this month and I can't think of any, like my mind's a complete blank. I'm like, I don't know. I can't remember. Oh, that's a lot. I do remember. Hold on. I do. So this past year, my favorite book I read was Christina Clancy's The Second Home. Did you read that one? I have not read that one. I highly recommend it. I actually emailed her. I was like, this book is amazing. It takes place in Cape Cod. It hits all the right notes. It's a serious beach read. You know, it has all the light elements. It's a family getting rid of a beach house one summer, but then it's very intense relationships between these siblings. It's really, really good. Oh, that's awesome. I'm writing that down. I have to read that. Well, this has been so fun. We have loved chatting with you and we know our listeners have loved chatting with you too and want to keep in touch with you. So can you tell us where we can find you online? Yes. So my website is brookleefoster.com and it's Brooke with an E and Lee, L-E-A. And I'm the same on Instagram, brookleefoster. And I'm also dabbling in TikTok. So you can find me there, brookleefoster author. Um, I've been trying to do little (laughs) videos giving writing advice. So any aspiring writers can find me there. And then I'm on Facebook with Lee Foster Writes. Nice, nice. Well, I can't tell you how thrilled we've been to talk with you today. Our members are big fans of the type of books that you write. And I'm stealing that beach read with teeth. (laughs) I'm doing it. Because it makes total sense. And this is exactly what your book is. But we can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us today. We love recording these episodes and we're so grateful that you're listening. Please share with a friend. And if you're enjoying these podcasts, please review them. It means the world to us. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.